Amen. If you would have a seat as you're being seated. Kiddos, teenagers, adults, I don't leave anyone out. Um, now, if you have kids that need the bulletin, parents, please don't steal it from them. But um, I, I want you to grab a bulletin. We specifically selected this um, picture today, and I'm going to tell you more about it later. But um, if you're a colorer or an artist, I, I'd sure love for you to color that thing as we, as we look at uh, the birth of Christ uh, one, once again this morning. And this, speci- this particular nativity scene, if you'd color that, I'd sure love uh, for you to show me that or give me that. This is a really detailed picture, and, and so I'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, if you would, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I was singing and thinking, uh, I'm thankful for our church that showed up, but one neat thing that happened this morning, I, I ran by, I picked up Tim, and we were coming out 205, and I, I expected to pull up and see the gate. It's the way it is every Sunday morning when I get here, and you get out, and you open it, you kick it open. And man, we turned the corner, and the lights of the church were on, and the gates were open. There were a team of men and women here serving their church well this morning, and for that, I'm very grateful. Breakfast and music and all sorts of things, so um, a very hearty thank you for that this morning. Um, I was well fed. (laughs) So we're going to look at Luke chapter 2 over the last... Well, beginning November 29th, the first Sunday of Advent, Advent is the season that begins four Sundays before Christmas Eve. And it is the celebration of the first Advent, the first coming, the first arrival of Jesus Christ. And it looks forward to the second Advent, the second coming. And so we... We looked and tried to answer this question from Matthew's Gospel. What child is this that we are celebrating His coming and looking forward to His second coming? In, on Christmas Eve, we gathered here and there was an Advent wreath and we had a Christmas Eve service where uh, much Scripture was read and a story was told and songs were sung. And in that, we, we lit the candles of the Advent wreath And in the last candle in the center is the Christ candle. We lit that Christ candle. And then from that Christ candle, we, His bride, the church, lit our candles, symbolic of light spreading into the world through Jesus Christ, through His people. So Advent runs four Sundays before Christmas, all the way up until midnight, Christmas Eve. And then begins the season of Christmas. And I know that we celebrate typically Christmas one day, the 25th of December, but the season of Christmas, like the season of Advent, is more than just one day. The season of Advent, we've, we've been through that, and we're now in the season of Christmas, and that, it lasts 12 days, and that's where we get the song, the 12 days of Christmas. And so today is, is still the season of Christmas, and we're going to look at this morning the birth of narrative from Luke's gospel of Jesus Christ. So Luke chapter 2, follow along with me. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration with Quirinius when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and line of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for, I be, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And there, and this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. With the, when the angels went away from them in heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Luke's account is the most detailed account of the nativity that we, of the birth of Christ that we have. It's an incredible story. And as it, when it begins, it t- begins with the story of this journey, this journey for Mary and for Joseph. And, and what it doesn't tell you is they traveled some 100 miles over this fairly rough terrain. It, it wasn't uh, like much of our terrain here today. It was a pretty rough terrain. And after walking for most likely more than a week, Mary was on the donkey. We know that. We think we know that. Uh, after walking for more than a week, what they faced was this climb into Bethlehem. And it was roughly 4,000 feet in elevation higher than where they were. And so this roughly 100-mile journey, a 4,000-foot uh, elevation change. Um, and when they get there, much to their dismay, there was no room for them in the end. right? There's no place for them to stay. Wearied from their journey, they arrive there and and they go knocking on doors and and there's no one that has a place for them to stay. The details on this are are really sparse. We get really one verse here, Luke 2, 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. For many of us, in fact, I I would... venture to guess that in, maybe in some of your homes, maybe some of you 
got it all taken down and packed away yesterday, but in, maybe in many of your homes, your Christmas decorations are still up. And, and in some of those places, there are nativity scenes. And, and history has filled in many of the blanks for us, right? We, we read this detailed account, but many of the things that you see in your nativity scene are, are not in this account. Um, but tradition has, has filled in the blanks for us. And, and we almost can see Mary and Joseph, right, going door to door, knocking on the door. And we've, I've seen pictures as depicted in movies. And he, Joseph is, is leading the donkey. And Mary is riding there. And she's great with child. And Joseph is knocking on the door. Um, well, Luke, he writes, this, he writes this account. The Gospel of Luke was written in, in Greek. And you don't have to know Greek, but, but you, you need to know this. When, when Luke wrote this account, there are really two words for in. And both of those words are recorded in the New Testament. Um, he, he could have used a word that indicates something like an in, like this commercial place, you know, that you would go to instead. You need to, you're traveling through a city and you would need to go to the holiday inn, right? And so you would go to the, the, the desk keeper, the innkeeper, and say, I need a room for the night. Uh, sorry, we're full up. Okay, so you would go to the next inn. Okay, he could have used that word, and that word is, is in the New Testament, actually, but he doesn't use that word. Uh, the word that you, Luke uses here, it, it signifies a guest room in someone's house. So, a room in someone's simple dwelling, this family dwelling. And, and when you stay there, you probably know the owner. Joseph is from, from this region, and so he, he has family ties in this region. So this word that Luke uses here is, is it indicates this, this family dwelling, this place where he most likely knows someone. And, and what you need to know is this typical Palestinian home. What they would do is there would be a, a one room where you stayed, where you slept, where you cooked, where you ate, all those things. And then if you had animals, there would be a, a, a room that was adjacent to it. It would, be, it would be divided only by a wall, and it would be a slightly lower in elevation. Okay, and There's a reason for that if you have animals. Stuff runs downhill, and so you don't want that running through your living room. So they would build the place where the animals stay a little lower. Um, and if they, had, if they had a little money, there would be a third room, an upper room. And this is where their guests would stay, okay? Um, and they would all be adjacent. But this, this word here that Luke is using would refer to this upper room, this guest room. Now, he has family in the area. It's his, it's his, uh, it's his ancestral neck of the woods, as it's been said. And my guess is, you know, his Facebook messages to all his family didn't get there fast enough, right? He's telling his people, hey, we're going to be in your area um, and, but when he gets there and he knocks on the door, it's found that there's no, there's no place for them to stay. Sorry, we're full up. We're filled up. Um, so Mary and Joseph are given a place in the lowest level of someone's house, the, the ground floor, the one used for the animals. It's very, very unlikely that it's a, that it's a lean-to out in the middle of a pasture somewhere. It is highly likely that it's someone's stable that is connected to their house. It's the place where they kept their animals, right? And that comes in handy uh, when you need a manger and a feeding trough to put a baby in. Um, so in Luke's telling of the birth of Christ, he mentions, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to refer to these passages, but notice in verse 7, verse 12, 
and verse 16, in, verse, in Luke's telling of the birth of Christ, he mentions the manger three times. If you've read Luke's gospel, he is a very detailed, disciplined writer. He's a physician. He's attentive to details. And so this is an interesting thing for Luke that he would record this. And so, so one of the things you should say or ask or take note of is when you're reading this gospel account, these short few verses, 20 verses that we read, three times there Luke mentions, hey, there's a manger that they're laying this baby in. And we need to ask the question, why does he keep pointing us to the manger? And this morning, I'm going to answer that question and say, we have to see that Luke, from the very beginning of his gospel, from chapter 1 and even well into what we've read in 2 and in continuing, he's insisting in direct and indirect ways that that the story of Jesus' life is this climactic moment of a much bigger story. And over the last few weeks, in the season of Advent, we've looked at Matthew's gospel, and we've tried to unpack in part this historical story that began with creation. And we, we specifically started with the life of Abraham. But Luke is showing us something here. He's pointing almost with his finger as he writes that there's a much greater story, a much longer, older story, if you will, and this, this is the story of God and His entire creation. In fact, if in the very next chapter, if you were to fast forward to the chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel, there's, there's most likely a heading beginning in verse 22, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And if you were to read that, He takes us all the way back to Adam, to creation. And one author says it this way, The story of Christmas begins at the dawn of time when God created the world and commissioned men and women to be His stewards over creation. You see, I I do believe that to know why Luke mentions the manger three very distinct times, very disciplined in his writing, I think what we'll see this morning is that we've got to know the story that Jesus is the climactic moment of. See, in the beginning, men and women, you and I, were given a high calling. See, God ruled over them. He cared for them. If you go back to the creation account, you you start in Genesis 1. Men and women were given a high calling. He created them and, and commanded them to rule over creation. Right? You know the story. Most people in this room know the story. They were to they were to exercise authority over creation. They were to care for it. They were to steward it. They were to rule over it. But then, what happened? The sneaky snake, right? The serpent. One of the animals, a serpent. He tempted their pride with their offer to be what? Like who? Like God, right? And so Adam and Eve, they take this offer. The snake, he tempts them to be like God, tempts their pride. And so they take the snake's offer. And God's good world is literally turned upside down. Everything is fractured. Sin enters in. And not just man and woman are broken, but all of creation is broken. And so instead of obeying God and wisely stewarding God's creation, ruling over the animals, the humans followed the least of the animals, the lowliest of animals, the serpent, the one that crawls on the ground. Now, Adam and Eve, instead of exercising authority over that animal, they follow So instead of becoming like God that the serpent said, they fell into sin. Adam and Eve failed 
as God's good stewards of creation. So in the fullness of time, right? We know that phrase. In the fullness of time, God sent who? His son, Jesus Christ. We've been celebrating that. We've been, we've been preaching about that, talking about that, teaching about that. In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus Christ to set things right. To return mankind's allegiance, humankind, if you will, man and woman's allegiance to their creator, to God, and really to usher in God's peaceable kingdom. In, in Isaiah's account, let me read this for you. You can jot this down. In Isaiah 11, in Isaiah 11, Isaiah writes this way about this peaceable kingdom. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. It's not accidental that the Christ child came in the form of a baby. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder's den. You see, there's this, there's this prophecy about this child and and we'll see in a moment the manger. But the child that there is that there is the one that will lead them. It should have not surprised many at all that, that this is the way it happened. This is, this is the way all of this went down. This little child, this babe in a manger. And this is why the shepherds find Jesus in a manger. Think about it, right? If you think about the baby in a manger, where better, think about this, where better to begin his rule than with the animals? What Adam and Eve failed to do, this child would do as God's faithful shepherd king. It was, it was the animal, right? It was the sneaky snake. It was the serpent, the devil in the garden that tempted their pride and so now, instead of exercising authority over the animal, now they followed the animal. They were underneath the authority of the animal, the rule of the animal. And so when the Christ child comes, he's in a manger. He's with the animals and is fulfilling the prophecies that were told in Isaiah. But this faithful shepherd king. Now, I, I want you to take a look at your worship guide. I, I chose this specifically for this morning. Carmen always does an incredible job of putting this together, but I emailed her and said, can you put this on the bulletin this morning? Um, this is a famous painter from the early 16th century, late 15th century. His name is Botticelli. There's a lot of things going on here. It's, it's a crazy, it's called the mystical nativity. If you've never seen it, I don't have time to explain all that's going on. You can Google search it, believe half of what you read and, and don't believe the other half, but but Botticelli is doing some really crazy things here. There's so much going on. Notice in the middle where, where Mary and the baby are. They're disproportionate in size. Mary, if she stands up, right, she's going to hit her head. And the baby is gigantic. He's a newborn child. He's gigantic. They're out of portion. And this was a, the way that the painters in that time were, were saying, I'm not painting necessarily realism. I'm, I'm using symbolism. I'm, I want you to see some things that are going on in my painting. And so you need to take note of that. 
Um, but, but down at the bottom, there are these angels in there. They're not wrestling. They're embracing humans. And on the far right, they're further apart. And in the middle, they're closer together. And on the very left, they're, they're much closer together. And it's to indicate that on the, on the right, or if you were to look at a map in the right way, on the, on the right is east and on the left is west. And, and in the Bible, anytime people traveled east, it was not good. They were further from God. When they're kicked out of Eden... They go, they're, they're, they're sent to the east. And Lot, he disobeys God and he, he makes his place to, to the east. It's all throughout the scripture. So there's much symbolism there. But, but what I want you to know, what, what I want you to notice is the animals, right? In the very middle, what are the two animals that are there? Do you notice? What are they? What's the, what are they? An ox and a donkey. Now, I know the ox looks kind of like our cows, but it's an ox and a donkey, okay? Um, this is Botticelli in his painting. He, we can, you can look that up, and he, he says that. These, this is an ox and a donkey. And the, the donkey is doing what? The donkey's eating from this crib, from this manger, from the trough. And the ox is, is looking, is, is supposed to be looking at, at Jesus, and I said earlier, I would suspect that some of you, if not many of you, have a nativity scene in your house. And there's a strong chance that in your nativity scene, there's an ox and a donkey. And most likely, a sheep or two, right? Do you know why the sheep are there? Because the good shepherd's there. And that's why the shepherds come there. And there's a reason that the ox... And the donkey are there, and we'll get to that in a moment. But knowing, seeing them there, and you having them in your in your nativity scene is tradition, right? When we read the most detailed account that Luke gives us in all the Gospels, it's not there. It's not in the birth narrative. We don't know if any animals are there. We know what was happening in that part of the world, and there were most likely animals there. But he doesn't tell us that there are animals there. He doesn't say anything at all. And yet, over and over and over, in fact, I looked at a lot of paintings, and beginning about the 13th century, around the 1200s, every painting was painted this way. And and writing much earlier than that. So what's going on? What's going on here? Why Why do, in your home, do you have an ox and a donkey? Are you making something up that's not supposed to be there? Is it significant? Why would we even... Why would, why would the pulpit even warrant an ounce of a moment to talk about why the ounce and the donkey are there, right? Well, again, the key, I believe, is to know the story. And a few minutes ago, I read from Isaiah chapter 11. Um, but let's go back to the beginning of Isaiah's writing. Isaiah chapter 1. You, can, you don't have to turn there. You can write this down. So in Isaiah chapter 11, he writes about a lion and a lamb. But listen to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people, does not know, and my people do not understand. Do you hear it in those words of Isaiah? I love how St. Ambrose writes it. Let me, in a sermon on this passage, he asked this question to his congregation. 
He says, when you look at the nativity, you hear the cries of an infant. But do you hear the lowing of an ox recognizing its master? For the ox knows his owner and the donkey his master's crib. You see, if we were to, if we were to spend the morning in the gospel accounts, all through the gospels, we see record that Jesus' life was filled with examples of people who were too proud to know what a simple, brute beast knew. Think about that. There is a reason that the ox and the donkey were there. God set it in motion and he prophesied it through Isaiah. And the brute animal knew that this in this crib is my master. This is the creator of the world. It sounds far-fetched, but it's, it's what scripture tells us. And throughout the Gospels, we see people that were too proud to admit that they need a Savior. People who felt that they were getting by well enough on their own, and they could get by without Him. So they rejected their Creator. We see that in in Matthew's account, in the early stages of Matthew's Gospel, in the first first days of Jesus' ministry, He says... That the people of his own town rejected him. He was not welcomed there, right? But many did welcome him. People who knew they needed God's healing and and no doubt God's intervention, um, they, they welcomed him. And that's why Jesus had outcasts and undesirables following him. Many of them knew of their need. They came to Jesus to become what we've said from here before and even on Sunday nights to become fully human. They were broken. They were in need of repair. They weren't all of who they were made, created to be. And so they come to Jesus to become fully human. But not just the outcasts, right? Think about, what about the wise men? Anybody have wise men in and around or near their nativity scene? Yeah. What about the wise men? They weren't outcasts. They were rich. They had gold and frankincense and myrrh. They were intelligent men. We know very little about them. What we do know is that they were magi. They were these ancient philosophers from the east where the Jews had lived in exile. They traveled from the east to the west to be near their king. During this time that the Jews were exiled, uh, this, the school of the Magi, they became very familiar with ancient prophecies, and so particularly the Jewish Messiah. And so from then on, these, these men began to watch the stars, and they waited to see this star that would hang to tell them of the birth of the Christ. So what's so surprising to me about the wise men is their humility. They, they needed nothing, really. They were intelligent. They were wealthy. They had all of the accoutrements of their day, gold, frankincense, myrrh, much educational training. And I think, man, we need many, we need more examples today of people who are both brilliant and genuinely humble, who are both wealthy and genuinely humble. You see, in the Bible, wisdom and humility consistently go together. It's because wisdom is ultimately expressed in terms of reverence, for God and allegiance to God. Wise men and women, one man wrote, from God's perspective are those who swallow their pride and admit their need for a Savior. 
You see, in just a few short months, we're already having conversations about Easter. It's March 27th this year. It's early. Seems early, right? But on Easter morning, Jesus rose from the dead and he now lives and reigns as the Prince of Peace. That is his title. He is the Prince of Peace. And he invites all people, men and women of every race and tribe and tongue, people of intellect and money like the wise men, people without means like the shepherds. He invites teenagers like Mary. All of us are invited to put our faith in him, to be reconciled to God and know freedom from sin. His call would say to us, follow the wise men to Jesus and lay your life and your treasure before him this Christmas season. The wise men knew that in the presence of royalty, they could set aside any ounce of pride and stop pretending in their own ability. I mean, they come to lay it down in front of a baby, right? Wise men and women worship him. I really want us to see this morning that just from this text, right, this there's intentional language here. There's the manger language. Luke wants us to know he's pointing to something theologically that's going on here. Isaiah is prophesying something. I just bring this visual here, not because it's not because Botticelli was a inspired by God to paint this or to write anything, but, but he, he grasped visually what the Bible says. There's much going on there, but he grasped the right animals that are there and they're oriented in the right way and they're eating from the manger because of what Isaiah says and prophesies about. And this baby who Luke tells us about, right, that's wrapped in what? Swaddling cloths. Like, a, like you would wrap a loaf of bread, right? This is the bread of life. And he's placed in a manger where the animals eat from. And the, 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 the picture here that what Luke is wanting us to see here is, hey, guys, this is the bread of life. And for all who were come, will come like the simple creatures we see here in this picture, all like the simple animal creatures to recognize the master's crib. So we've heard that how the shepherds responded, right? What did they say? They glorifying and praising God. We heard how wise men responded. They, will, they were humbly searching for God and then worshiping Him. Herod and Jerusalem, they responded. They were troubled and filled with resistance to the, to the, to the point of wanting to kill and even killing all of the children under a certain age. We see how Mary responds. And so my question for us this morning is, what is your response? Right? What, what is your response what child is this? We, we left this screen up there. What child is this? Well, this is the bread of life. Edward indicated this, read this from the scriptures on Thursday, on Christmas Eve, the, the living water from heaven. And this morning, what Luke is wanting to see from this text is that this is the bread of life. He is the master. He's, he's the one that Isaiah prophesied about that would lead, the small child that would lead them. And these Animals that are oriented in this painting, rightly so, toward their master. The one that feeds them both physically, right? And their creator. He made them. He created them. He caused them to pass before Adam that Adam would name them. He's the maker of all things. And so, and this, this Sunday after Christmas, um, this 
as we enter the new year, 2016, what will our response be as a church? What will your response be as an individual to the bread of life? You know, we, we have, um, we have uh, multiple opportunities in the new year. This is not in my notes. This is for free. Uh, we, we have multiple opportunities in 2016. I want to encourage you in a couple of ways. Uh, we have people um, that serve this church very, very well and have been praying and working very hard to prepare for 2016. And so from, from the youngest of kiddos, right? Our kiddos are in here with us. No nursery next Sunday. We, you will very likely be very appreciative of the nursery, right? And in our nursery classes and in all of those grades, we have a curriculum called the Gospel Project where our kids are being taught chronologically the Bible. Chronologically the Bible. Maybe or maybe you're not. They are getting all of those details at a very early age, but they are getting that consistently through the sixth grade. And we have people that are faithfully praying and preparing and teaching. I would encourage you that if you're not already... And get involved and get your kiddos involved in a Sunday school class. They are being taught about and being fed the bread of life. They are. We have faithful people faithfully teaching that word. And then inside your bulletin, it tells um, adult Sunday school. We have uh, the epistle of 1 John, Colton's Ardall's class, the book of Colossians, Art and Floyd. Art Gartside and Floyd Stokes are teaching that class. Fruits, Fruit of the Spirit in Doug... Doug Berry's teaching that class. The book of Genesis, Jennifer Heinze. That's a women's class that meets right here to my left, to your right. The college and career Bible study that Tony and Courtney are leading. Um, in youth, we have faithful youth teachers in Scott and Lura Manley and others that, are, that we are teaching through God's word faithfully. I would encourage you to be involved in a Sunday school class. I think that's the proper response to the bread of life. We feast devotionally, right? You need to feast at home. That is very, very, very important. But we also need to feast in a studious kind of way as well. And you have to have both of them. You have to have both of them. That's another Sunday. That's another sermon. But you need both of them. There are Sunday nights here that what, what will be happening is from in our kiddos, they will be... Uh, being instructed in hiding God's word in their heart from kindergarten to sixth grade, memorizing books of the Bible and God's word faithfully every Sunday night, as well as singing. They're already beginning to prepare Easter music, the risen savior music, worshipful type stuff. And so that every Sunday night that's happening, people are praying and preparing. That is a way to come and engage your church. Um, on Sunday nights, there is faithful Bible teaching that happens in our chapel. It's a follow-up from Sunday morning, and I am rarely in there. Stacy and I are with our students, and but some of the most in- incredible testimonies from people in our church have come to me from Sunday night times. And so I would encourage you to engage your church that way. Right? Wednesday nights, from uh, in our RAs and our GAs. I, I can't speak for the boys because I have three daughters. And my, my girls come home faithfully talking about and praying for missionaries around the world. You know why? Because our GA leaders are faithfully preparing and teaching them about missionaries all over the world. Church planters in San Diego and missionaries in other parts of the world. And they're faithfully learning as it relates to God's word about that. Right? 
Wednesday nights, uh, begin, when we start back in January, the students, we will be walking, we'll pick up from Matthew's narrative of the birth of Christ. We'll pick up in Matthew 2 and we'll walk through Matthew chapter 7 because Matthew doesn't just call us to believe, he calls us to works as well. And so in our student ministry, we will be walking through Matthew's gospel and what Jesus demands of our life. It is a great opportunity to come and feast. On Wednesday night, beginning in January, we will have a church-wide, church-wide, one discipleship class for adults. I would love for you to be a part of that. It's going to be team taught. There'll be study guides that go with that. You'll hear more about that. I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. Nobody asked me to do it. But as I thought about how in the world do we feast on the bread of life? How do we, like the donkey, feast from the trough? No doubt, we, we do that devotionally and privately. I would encourage you to do that. You, you need to be reading through the Bible this year. You do. You need to read through the Bible. You do. You need to not, and, and, or maybe you need to just read small little packages of it and you need to meditate on it throughout the day. But you cannot escape. You cannot escape the absolute I'm going to use the word demand on the life of a Christian to faithfully be a part of a local body of believers. It is, it is unavoidable in the Bible, period. We can have lots of conversations about that later. But I want to encourage you. Man, I was so encouraged this morning. I turned the corner and the lights and the people. I love this place. And I love the people that serve here and that feast here. And so I want, I want to just humbly and graciously say, this is a great day. And this is a great opportunity to say, as we look at the birth of Jesus Christ, the baby in that manger is not simply a baby. He's the bread of life. And we have been, we have been called to feast on the bread of life. And so we will do that privately. But from this vantage point, I need to say to you, we need to do that corporately as well. Corporately as well. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for you. And we are grateful that you are, you use each, each gospel account. There is so much more in the, in the birth narrative of your son Christ. So much there. We've, we've only scratched the surface as, as the last four weeks we've looked at, at Matthew's gospel account. And this morning, very, very quickly in Luke's, in Luke's recording, detailed as it was, he's, he's showing us, God, that you were faithful to the smallest of thing, even in Isaiah's prophecy, that this donkey would eat from the master's crib and the ox would know his master and it we see that here and we we know that and this babe in a manger was more than just a babe in a manger was the bread of life the christ the messiah emmanuel god with us who came to rescue the sinner thank you thank you thank you Lord, I pray that our response to this, that would be like the wise men, that we would diligently follow, that we would diligently look after seeking first the kingdom of God.
and that we would move away from the things that are far from you and that we would move closer, more nearer to you and we would respond like the teenagers did. Mary. (laughs) We would respond like the shepherds, glorifying and praising God. That we wouldn't respond like Herod. We wouldn't respond like Jerusalem. We wouldn't respond like the the people of Jesus' hometown who would not have Him, but that there would be room for Him in us because we have been preparing room for Him. This bread of life. Father, thank You for that. I pray that as we go today, even in the moment, that we might respond, um, but it would not be a momentary response. It would stay with us asking, what is our response to the bread of life? Thank you for being near to us this morning, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.